Welcome back to the Procedures Podcast. I'm Mike Noonan, and we're very lucky today to have with us Chris Groombridge, a pre-hospital and emergency physician, and I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm an emergency physician primarily. I work here at the Alfred, but I uh, have a particular interest in pre-hospital and retrieval medicine, and I've spent a, a few years building experience in that realm, a couple of years with Sydney Hems, and then been in London, working with London Hems for the last year. Now, today we're talking about something that's a very common procedure, which is a little bit unlike some of the procedures that we're doing, and that is a vascular access, but more specifically around the resuscitative vascular access and, and gaining vascular access rapidly in patients who potentially are exsanguinating or uh, need that rapid vascular access for large volume resuscitation. So... Obviously, we've got a couple of different techniques, and I might let you kick off, Chris, with regard to the techniques that I suppose we would support in this course, but also the variety of, of techniques available. And give you a scenario, so we've got a trauma patient who is hemodynamically unstable with no vascular access um, on arrival. What techniques would you consider, and, and what techniques um, would you suggest are the most appropriate to, to use in these sort of patient groups? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Vascular access is definitely a very crucial step in the resuscitation of these critically injured patients. Uh, I think it's important to remember that you usually have a team with you, so either in the pre-hospital setting, a team of paramedics, or in the resuscitation bay in a hospital, many other members of staff. And I think it's appropriate to delegate peripheral access straight away. So short, large-bore anticubital fossa lines provide fantastic flow rates. And, and if you can delegate a couple of people to look for those, that's a really good start uh, in the resuscitation. But my favourite access point is the uh, subclavian central line, a large-bore trauma line. And here we use the MAC, or multi-lumen access catheter line. We use that here at the Alfred, and that was the line we carried with London Hems as well. And the reason I like the subclavian line it's for a number of reasons. It's got a consistent position and it can be found using a landmark technique. So you didn't need to carry an ultrasound with us pre-hospitally and it doesn't have the sterility issues of getting the ultrasound in position to identify the vessels. It's a vein that tends to maintain its patency even in hypovolemia. So in this patient you described, they're shocked and there's likely to be collapse of veins, even the central veins. But the, the subclavian vein is surrounded by various soft tissues uh, and the adventitia is, uh, is held open by those attachments. So the attachment to the subclavius muscle and the anterior scalene muscle helps to maintain patency of that vein even in the in the shocked patient. It's also a good access point because you don't need to move the patient. Uh, the C-spine precautions can be maintained uh, while you access that vein. In terms of when I would move to a, a subclavian central line, I think if you've got two large bore peripheral cannulae, you don't need to move straight to a, to a MAC line. Um, but there are going to be certain situations when it can be a really important step. So if you're struggling to get IV access for whatever reason, either because of previous vessel damage from intravenous drug use or in the trauma patient with multiple limb injuries or burns, it can be very difficult to get peripheral IV access and the subclavian line, as I say, is a, is a consistent and and useful access point. So it's a really good point, I think, that you bring out that if you've got enough hands, this is something that you should assign to probably more than one operator. In terms of positioning of peripheral lines, have you got any thoughts in terms of where where they should be, upper limb, lower limb, depending on the pathology? Yeah, so I uh, have a definitely have a preference for the upper limb. In multi-trauma patients, particularly ones with abdominal or pelvic trauma, you can have concerns about downstream venous injury. So if you get access to the groin or, or further down with your peripheral access, central access, or with your IO, then you may not be 
um, providing your volume resuscitation to the circulation. And so my preference would be upper limb, both for peripheral access and, and even for IO. So my, my first choice for an IO would be a humeral IO. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Certainly, I can recall some cases here at our hospital where we've actually only been able to get femoral access for, for various reasons or the patients arrive with that and using that access we've probably actually pushed blood products into the retroperitoneal space. And uh, yeah, I think it's a great point that you bring out that this is not our preferred method or location for particularly trauma patients. But in any shutdown patient, certainly I think it's an easier and more rapid approach going for the subclavian approach, although that's an eminence rather than evidence-based answer to that question. Thinking about other options like IO, where do you see the IO fitting into the overall picture with the adult patient or the trauma patient particularly? Yeah, I think the IO is a, is a good option. It does provide rapid access and, and is reliable and it's quite easy to teach people to do. Um, it's perhaps less daunting than putting in a, a subclavian central line. However, I think if you do have the skills uh, and the team available to put in a subclavian line, it is a better and more durable access but there's no reason that both can't be done. So you, you could delegate uh, intraosseous access to the contralateral shoulder while you're setting up to, to put in the MAC line. But I definitely think it's good to have in your arsenal and, uh, and the IO drill should be kept in a trauma bay. With your previous experience with some, I suppose, some of the world-leading pre-hospital services, was the IO something that was used commonly in your standard operating procedures? So in London, we didn't have intraosseous access as part of the SOP although the road crews did carry it and so often you could turn up to a patient that did already have intraosseous access if they were a difficult um, peripheral access patient. Uh, our SOP tended to focus on peripheral or central access by the subclavian route. Uh, in Sydney, it was part of the SOP. We, we carried the IO drill and was a good technique and was a, a good option if you're failing to get uh, peripheral access and so some variety in practice there. So I think that's a good thing to bring out. Certainly, obviously, in paediatrics, there's a large body of literature, I suppose, supporting the use of, of that device in, in patients who are not getting rapid intravenous access. But um, for the adult patient who's exsanguinating, the central access sounds like it certainly is more commonly used around the world. Thinking about your peripheral access, the other thing that we have available to us here, and I think probably many services, is the um, RIC line or, or the rapid infusion catheter. Is this something that, that you've used in your practice or have used in the past? Yeah, I think the RIC line is a, is a good option. I have used it in EDs. We didn't carry it pre-hospitally, but certainly if you've got a 20-gauge cannula in a relatively proximal vein, it's a, it's a good option to be able to upgrade uh, that catheter to a, to a large-bore line. Yeah, certainly uh, it, it's a reliable technique. My only concern is if you've got fragile veins or distal veins, you, you risk losing your, your one remaining access point. So tailor it to the patient, I think. So moving on to the subclavian access, just talk to us about the various devices, equipment that you've used or you can use and, um, and how you might go about actually achieving subclavian access in a, in a patient who's exsanguinating. Yeah, I think we should uh, talk about lines that are developed for this setting. So for trauma, uh, the standard central lines we might use, say for sepsis, or for ICU patients are less appropriate uh, as they don't allow a rapid infusion. Short, large-bore catheters are much more appropriate, and the one we demonstrate in the video is the MAC line, or multi-lumen access catheter. And this has two large-bore lumens, a 9 French and a 12-gauge lumen, which really allow very rapid uh, infusion of products. It also acts as a sheath, and so a multi-lumen catheter, a standard central line, can be fed into the central circulation via the sheath 
giving you many uh, further ports for subsequent use. But in trauma, this is a short 10 centimeter, essentially plastic tube that allows very high flow rates. So in terms of inserting that device, if you could just run through briefly how you would insert that, obviously we'll assume knowledge of central access for most of our, our listeners, but just running through particularly specifics around subclavian access and, and this device. So for inserting the subclavian line, I like to think that the preparation phase is actually really important. And I break that down to three components. I like to make sure that the patient team and kit are all prepared before I start getting ready to insert the needle. And in terms of preparing the patient, I like to ensure the access to the area, so ECG dots, the collar and the dressings are all removed so that I can uh, get a good sterile field for the procedure. The patient should be slightly head down if possible in the Trindenberg position. Uh, this may distend the vein a little bit, but also reduces the risk of uh, air embolism. The head should be in the midline, so a neutral head position. The ipsilateral arm should be adducted, so against the body, uh, and some longitudinal traction can sometimes help with access in the vein, about five centimetres. And so ideally you'd have a dedicated assistant available to provide this longitudinal traction. In terms of the preparing the team then, so brief the assistant on this arm positioning that you're seeking. Uh, I also like to perform a, a timeout process. You can become very task-focused when you're at the right shoulder uh, preparing to put that line in. And there may be contraindications that you haven't identified that the rest of the team members may already be aware of. I think the big one is the contralateral pneumothorax. And so a brief timeout, let the rest of the team know that you're about to put this line in, uh, can reduce errors. In terms of preparing the kit, I think this is a, a great opportunity for a bit of mental rehearsal. So I lay out the kit in order and remove any, any unnecessary kit. I like to check particularly that the J tip of the guide wire is retracted back into the wire guide. Uh, and I aim to have the guide wire immediately available so it should be in the sterile field so I can get hold of the guide wire to insert into the needle after the venipuncture without having to um, move the needle at all. I think that's a crucial step. So in terms of procedure, PrEP and DRAPE is standard. We recommend Chlorhex and alcohol to PrEP. And I like to achieve a, a four-sided sterile field uh, with DRAPEs. Uh, and now identify the, the landmarks. The, the landmarks we describe uh, on this course is a slightly more lateral uh, insertion point, and, but it does avoid guesstimating your insertion site by dividing the clavicle up into sections. Uh, so we access via the delta pectoral or clavipectoral triangle. Uh, this is a triangle that you can feel on a patient. It's bounded superiorly by the clavicle. The medial border is the uh, pectoralis major muscle, the clavicular head of that, and then the deltoid muscle is the lateral border. So that's your needle insertion site. You're looking for a point two centimetres below the clavicle, just lateral to the lateral border of that clavicular head of pectoralis major. The technique is, uh, I like to think of as being performed in two phases. I have the needle and guide wire phase where I'm very, very task focused, and then everything else I can have slightly more bandwidth. So we've already identified the, the needle insertion site. What I do is uh, insert the 18-gauge uh, Seldinger needle through the skin, aiming to hit the clavicle. It's a nice big target, and it reassures me that I'm kind of in the right, right area. Once I touch the clavicle, I come back a couple of millimetres, and then aim to bring the whole shaft of the needle beneath the clavicle while staying in the horizontal plane. I think this is really important to avoid plunging down uh, near important structures such as the pleura, reduces your risk of pneumothorax. So bring the needle back a couple of millimetres, and then with your non-dominant index finger on the skin between the clavicle and your insertion site, you can lower the whole needle and syringe in the horizontal plane, bringing it below the clavicle. I then imagine the shaft of the needle riding along the undersurface of the clavicle, and I'm aiming towards the suprasternal notch. And I find it quite helpful to put the index finger of my non-dominant hand into the suprasternal notch as kind of a target for needle insertion. Insert gradually with a, a slight aspiration on the syringe, and you should aim to get flashback at around three or four centimetres beneath the clavicle. Sometimes you find that 
you don't get any blood whilst aspirated on the insertion of the needle, but sometimes there's a, you get flashback on removing. So just do it slowly and, and see if you can get that flashback. I allow myself three passes. So if the first pass of the needle doesn't achieve a flashback of blood, then I'll adjust my aim with the, with the needle to a point just inferior to the original path of the needle. Uh, so aiming just inferior to the point where my finger is in the supersternal notch. And then the third pass just above that point, so just superior to that point. Once I get the flashback, my aim then is to hold the, the needle very, very still. The kits we use have a blue syringe that actually has a lumen that allows insertion of the wire through the, the, the central um, wire guide of the syringe. And this does, uh, I think, reduce the risk of air embolism associated with this technique. But I personally find it's a bit cumbersome holding a syringe away from the skin and trying to get the wire through the syringe without moving the insertion site with the tip of the needle in the subclavian vein. So I personally like to remove the syringe. I also find that helps me confirm that I'm in the right place. I expect a slight trickle of blood with a patient head down and pulsatile blood I would be concerning. So it helps me be more certain that I'm in the subclavian vein. Holding the needle very, very still, you can rest your hand, your left hand on the clavicle while you hold the hub of the needle to, to reduce movement. Feed the guide wire through the, the needle and I tend to go in about 15 centimetres. No, you don't need to go in very, very deep. The needle's only 10 centimetres long. And then you can remove the needle, and that's kind of the phase one complete. You can have a take a breather. Put the needle somewhere safe. If, if you've got a sharp spin, it can go straight into the sharp spin. The next step is to incise the skin at the guide wire. We use an 11-blade scalpel. Cut the skin adjacent to the guide wire. You need to go a couple of millimetres in to make sure you get through enough tissue because you want to allow the catheter to pass easily when you feed the catheter over the guide wire. Again, place the scalpel somewhere safe. During your preparation phase, the introducer will have been inserted through the lumen of the MAC line. Uh, so the MAC line with introducer already in situ can then be loaded onto the guide wire and fed through the skin. Sometimes a bit of a rotation movement with the hand can help get through the, the layers. But aim to insert the, the MAC line to the hub. It's a 10 centimetre line once it's in and, and that can be inserted all the way to the hub. Next, you can remove the guide wire and the introducer. The MAC line we use has a valve on it, so there won't be any bleeding when you remove the introducer. The valve will act as a sheath, and the introducer can be removed easily. As with all cell dinner techniques, it's, it's really important to, to point out that you, you never let go of the wire, so be in control of the wire at all times. I attach three-way taps to the lumens and then aspirate each of the lumens. This is a good opportunity to take some bloods if they haven't already been taken for your, your trauma pathology, and then flush all the lumens, then secure the catheter to the skin. In terms of using this cannula, obviously you've completed the procedure, you've got a large bore cannula, you think in the right spot. What's your algorithm, I suppose, for use of that cannula, given that let's say this is maybe your only vascular access? Do we need a chest x-ray first? Do we use agitated saline and an ultrasound? Do we confirm with an arterial blood gas analysis? What are your thoughts, Chris? Look, they're all good options. I think because we're putting this in for rapid access, um, and assuming that procedure you went according to plan, then my practice actually to connect up and start using the line straight away. Uh, in the pre-hospital setting, you don't have the benefit of uh, any of these confirmation techniques that you mentioned. And we would use the line straight after insertion. But in the trauma bay, you do have rapid access to a chest X-ray or an ultrasound machine. So I think it, you can aim to start using it, but promptly confirm no uh, pneumothorax with a chest X-ray or the ultrasound. Uh, and then the other techniques you mentioned, getting a, a blood gas or you can even connect the line up to a to a pressure transducer to see whether it has an arterial trace or not. Uh, but I do tend to, assuming that I haven't aspirated air or arterial blood, I tend to 
crack on and use the line straight away. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. You're in obviously a situation that is um, is quite emotive, um, and it's not, I suppose, in many of these instances, a usual situation. But uh, obviously, trying to be as as safe as you can with the resource limitation in mind is quite important. So yeah, so they're they're really good points that you bring out. There obviously is a risk of, of cannulating the artery in that area, and, and it is something that's, that can be managed. But certainly from that point of view, it's the C of the ABCs first, and that's basically trying to resuscitate this patient who's potentially exsanguinating. Apart from obviously trying to get some idea of where this line is and, and ensuring that it's in the subclavian vein as you're expecting, is there any other post-procedure care stuff that um, that's worth bringing out at this point? Yeah, one of the things we, we do worry about further down the road is uh, line sepsis uh, and there are things that can be done during the insertion phase that reduce the risk of this so as we described effective um, prepping and sterile draping of the field but actually securing the catheter effectively and, and preventing movement of the skin is, is felt to reduce the rates of infection so I, I would put the suture into the skin adjacent to the hub of the of the central line but then tie the first knot of the suture to the skin then feed the suture needle through the, the suture hole of the uh, catheter uh, and then tie the second knot down onto the first knot and that tends to keep the catheter much more stationary and prevent movement. We also use a uh, bio patch around the hub of the catheter and this is a commercial device that will leach chlorhexidine to the insertion site over the next seven days and that's been shown to reduce rates of line sepsis as well. Final dressing then consists of a, a small tegaderm which I place onto the skin below the uh, the lumens of the central line, and then a large tegaderm dressing over the, the whole assembly. Uh, this tends to help it stick well to the, to the skin and not move after securing the catheter. We've talked a lot about this procedure, and we've talked about some, uh, some of the nuances. Is there any other pitfalls or pointers that you might bring out for other listeners? In terms of pearls, I guess getting the patient to trend Dillenberg position, that uh, reassures me that they're less likely to get an air embolism. Uh, and certainly this is an under-recognised uh, complication in, the, in hypovolemic patients. And then I think it's worth thinking about some of the relative contraindications. If you look at the patient, you think you're going to struggle to get the needle into the horizontal plane due to anatomy. Um, for example, if the patient has protracted shoulders or is very obese and there's a little soft tissue, uh, then I think that's a more risky procedure. You, you're more likely to cause an inadvertent pneumothorax. So mentally planning in advance, you want to be able to perform the whole procedure safely uh, and getting that needle into the horizontal plane is, is a really important safety step in the procedure. I suppose for me, two of the things that I've certainly experienced, so if you do have arterial puncture, I think the actual size of the lumen is concerning with, uh, with the MAC line and it probably is actually worth thinking about having the vascular team actually look at these catheters in this area where you've got a non-compressible vessel that you're potentially pulling it straight out of. So I think if you've got a heat of the, the battle resuscitation, you think you've gone into the artery, my preference would be just to leave that cannula there. And actually at that stage, you can then review your, uh, your CT, which this patient will invariably go for at some point and potentially have the vascular team look at that catheter position if you're concerned that it is in the artery. And the second thing is the inevitable pneumothorax. And certainly I've caused pneumothorax before with this procedure. And I suppose the way we get around that here is during our trauma reception, we actually expect that any patient who is a hypovolemic or hypoxic trauma patient who we really are managing as a shock trauma patient, we actually set them up to do the 
the gamut, if you like, of chest procedures. So we'll actually drape their whole chest from the upper abdomen all the way to really around the neck and just above the clavicles and to each side. So what we can do then is, is have someone scrub to do large bore vascular access as well as having someone uh, scrub to actually decompress both sides of the chest and potentially move on for thoracotomy. And I think what that's allowed me to do in the past where I know that I've caused a pneumothorax during a resuscitation where we've had lots of hands around the chest is that I've just asked my colleague to then move on and decompress the chest because I think that's just the easiest next step while you're in that position, um, particularly with that patient and you're wondering whether your, your pneumothorax that you've caused is actually the result uh, results in their, them becoming hypoxic or uh, hypovolemic down the track. Just one other thing that I don't think we did cover was the side that you choose can be dictated by the other pathology that the patient may have. So I think we, we mentioned that you the contralateral pneumothorax is a contraindication. So if the patient does have a pneumothorax, then accessing the subclavian line on that side is a, is a, is a good idea. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. And particularly when you're actually setting up your team and you have some call-out time to actually prepare, um, sometimes you don't actually really know which side that is. So it's a, it's a really good point to bring out for the team leader to say, no, vascular access, we're going to the left side for whatever reason. And certainly I think it's, it's worthwhile being proficient at this procedure on both sides because um, that is often a case where you, we get comfortable doing it on one side and, um, and we may need to actually do it on the other side uh, at short notice. Well, thank you very much for your time, Chris. Thanks, and uh, I'll see you at the course.